Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the blessings of the day, for your mercies that are new each day, and Lord, we just pray that the Holy Spirit would be present in this place. We claim the promise that when we gather together for the camp meeting, Jesus is there. And Lord, we need uh, an awakening in our own hearts and clarity for how we can better trust you for the future. So please guide our meeting, speak to our hearts, and uh, may we know when we leave this place that we've been in the presence of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right. This is uh, installment number three of the future of Adventism. My keys here. <clears throat> and uh, two days ago, I uh, shared the first installment, which was the future of Adventist biblical interpretation. And I just want to do just a brief review here. Um, and I also want to say that as we go through this particular uh, topic, that um, if you're wanting to know where it's headed, it's going to be somewhat of a part two of what Pastor Howard did yesterday. <laughs> um, because the foundations of what we're going to be talking about today, which is the future of Adventist lifestyle, has everything to do with how we understand the Gospel as Seventh-day Adventists. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that, and uh, maybe uh, at the end we'll be able to see how that applies to our lifestyle understandings of Seventh-day Adventists. Um, but just a little bit back two days ago, because at the heart of every one of these topics, the reason we started with biblical interpretation is because everything that we are challenged with seems to have at its uh, core how we interpret the Bible. And uh, we talked when I was here with you on Monday about how errors of many of the evangelical churches, errors about the Sabbath, about death, about hell, um, they're all accepted because of an unbiblical hermeneutic. They have a different way of getting to their understandings. Um, we also looked at a couple of areas of recent study in the Seventh-day Adventist church, such as creation versus evolution, such as the question of women's ordination. And I don't know if you're aware, but at the last GC session, there were a number of fundamental beliefs that received um, some slight modification. And one of those was number six on creation. Um, there were some delegates from areas of the world church that uh, perhaps have embraced a more progressive hermeneutic um, that really pushed back against the changes that were being suggested to be more specific about the timing of the creation account. Um, they felt that we needed to leave the timing, uh, leave room for interpretation. I'm going to share with you just what uh, fundamental belief number six says now about the timing of creation. It says, God has revealed in Scripture the authentic and historical account of His creative activity. He created the universe, and in a recent six-day creation, so they don't like the word recent, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Thus He established the Sabbath as a perpetual memorial of the work He performed and completed during six literal days, six literal days, 
that together with the Sabbath constituted the same unit of time that we call a week today. So it's trying to be as specific as possible that when we read about the week of creation, we're talking about the same units of time, not thousands or millions of years within day one. You understand? Now to me, the issue of creation is about as clear as it gets in the Bible. So why wouldn't someone just believe what it says? The only reason I can give is the pressure to harmonize with popular science and culture. When culture becomes convinced of something, and this is something I want us to think about, when everyone begins to speak with essentially one opinion and one voice, it can be pretty hard to hold on to the Bible. To believe in creation is to ignore the overwhelming evidence, they would say. Don't be so ignorant. To believe in complementary roles for men and women while maintaining equality between all is just a smooth talking form of misogyny and oppression of women. Don't be so discriminatory. To believe that homosexual practice is sinful behavior is to selfishly deny others the opportunity to love someone like you do and has pushed innocent people to want to end their own lives. Don't be so hateful. You understand that everything in culture eventually brings itself into one opinion and one voice. It's going to be in opposition to the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like being considered ignorant and discriminatory and hateful. I'm quite the people pleaser, actually. Ask my brother. I didn't take many sides when we were younger. I just tried to make peace. But that's the pressure of culture. That's the pressure that is on biblical interpretation. It has slain the faithfulness of many Christian denominations. And it's slain the faithfulness of many a Christian. Nothing leads to a wrong method of biblical interpretation like the pressure of culture. Whether historical critical or allegorical or proof texting methods, you remember we looked at all of those if you were here on Monday, all false methods of hermeneutics that quite frankly are all the same to me. They're just one method that I like to call the whatever-it-takes hermeneutic. Whatever it takes to come to the conclusion that I want or to avoid the conclusion that I don't want. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist Church doesn't believe in creeds. If you ever look at the Seventh-day Adventist Church manual, right before the Seventh-day Adventist beliefs are listed, it makes it very clear that Seventh-day Adventists do not believe in creeds creeds. Our only creed is the Bible. So if sound Bible study leads us to a fuller or even a different understanding than we have historically held on any point, we should be willing to go wherever the Lord leads us. That's how we feel and have always believed as Seventh-day Adventists. Now when it comes to controversial issues like women's ordination, which we touched on on Monday, it's not that we shouldn't be willing to see things differently. We most certainly should be willing to always sit down and discuss the Bible and be open to changing our viewpoint if the Bible evidence takes us there. But we should never make a change in practice unless and until we have an interpretation that meets the same quality standard as the rest of our biblical beliefs. It can't be based on speculations. It can't be based on suggestions. It can't be based on historical reconstructions that are a little bit questionable. 
and it can't ignore biblical precedent. You see, one of the things that happens when you study with people, and many of you who have studied, given Bible studies, understand this, you can study with someone on, say, the topic of what happens when you die or the topic of hell. And someone can go to absent from the body, and they can go to the rich man and Lazarus, and they can say, it clearly states. But the problem is, they do not carry the burden to deal with or reckon with the great body of text that we would consider the weight of evidence in Scripture. We cannot make the same mistake. We cannot make a claim based on something that we think has some semblance of whatever, but not feel the burden to reconcile the body of texts that are seeming to say something plainly different. We have to be honest in our study of the Bible and be honest with biblical precedent and have sensible, reasonable answers for that if we're going to make a change in what we believe. All of our beliefs and practices have to use the same sound hermeneutical principles and be, be supported by the same weight of inspired evidence in both the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. Never the weight of popular opinion or cultural ideas of justice or equality. That is what we studied on Monday, and that I'm reminding us of because it is the issue that drives every potential uh, wrong path in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I want to remind you of a Bible verse you know very well. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12 says this, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This, of course, is on the tail end of the third angel's message, contrasting those who receive the mark of the beast with those who will be faithful to the end. The patience of the saints. The NASB says the perseverance of the saints. The NIV says the patient endurance of the people of God. These are the words used to describe those who have to endure the frown of the world. You understand? It, it's not smooth sailing to the end. We're not going to be going with the stream. We're going to be going against what culture and the world seem to be considering right and just. And at the end of time, we know from Scripture it's going to require this kind of perseverance to remain faithful to God and to His Word. Now yesterday, Pastor Mark talked to us about the Adventist view of the everlasting gospel. And he shared how the pressures of Christian culture, now I'm not just talking about uh, the culture of the world, but the culture of the great body of Christianity, has influenced many in our church to begin viewing the gospel from a more evangelical perspective. Perhaps they don't go as far. I would certainly say that most of them don't. But unfortunately, the principles are much the same, and therefore they lead you to similar conclusions. Now, today I'm going to take the next step and talk about how a more evangelical understanding of the gospel is influencing much of what has made us distinct and a peculiar people in terms of Christian standards and lifestyle. But in order to understand this, we're going to have to go back, and we're going to have to review some key points from yesterday's presentation and have sort of a part two on the topic of our view of the, of the everlasting gospel. Now, Pastor Mark shared a text yesterday I want to look at. It is Romans chapter 7, 
and verse 14. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I'm going to give you another verse there in Romans that's quite similar. It says in Romans 8, verses 6 and 7, that to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. What does that mean? Enmity. Hostile toward God. In opposition to God. Why? The word for has another meaning. What's the word for mean? Because. The reason that we are hostile naturally in our carnal condition, the reason that we are in opposition to God is because the carnal mind, the mind we're born with, is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. You see, the Christian is not simply a modification of something he or she once was. He's, he or she is a new creature, right? 2 Corinthians 5 uh, tells us very clearly that, uh, that old things have passed away. All things have become new. So that's because you can't take the old and make it what you need it to be. It can't be made subject to law of God. You have to be born again. You have to become a new creature. Now, this issue of the fact that the law is spiritual and I'm carnal and I can't be in my, my carnal heart cannot be made spiritual. This issue is uh, what brings about the need for the gospel. This brings about the need for the death of Christ. You see, God is in harmony with His character and the spiritual law, and we have a carnal mind, and there's a great separation there. And so, the question is asked, why did Jesus have to die? What is the Gospel? Now, Seventh-day Adventists view this differently than evangelicals as a rule. For many within the evangelical world, God has to remove the law, therefore allowing man with his carnal mind and behavior to be in harmony with God's requirements. Do you understand? So basically the idea is man cannot possibly live up to a spiritual law, so Jesus did for man. Jesus died to pay the penalty and now the law is no longer required, so it's essentially the requirements for man are earthly. They meet his earthly condition. Whatever his earthly condition is, that's all that's needed anymore because of what Jesus did for him. Seventh-day Adventists believe that what God does is write his law in the heart and mind of man, so that instead of removing the spiritual he removes the carnal in order to bring harmony. Let me give you a few statements to try to summarize it. To the evangelical, Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death pays the debt of my sin and frees me from the bondage of the law. To the Adventist, Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death pays the debt of my sin and frees me from the bondage of the carnal heart. The evangelical gospel removes the requirement of the law, and the Adventist gospel writes the law on the heart. The evangelical faith makes void the law, and the Adventist faith establishes the law. As it's written in Romans 3.31, Do we then make void the law through faith? 
Certainly not. On the contrary, the exact opposite of doing away with the law, faith is the only thing that helps us to establish the law in our hearts and in our lives. Remember, faith is central to how we are saved. We're talking about the gospel of salvation here. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, we recognize, as Pastor Mark shared yesterday, that this is expressed in different ways in the Bible. And we know in Romans 5.1 that we are justified by faith. And that's how we are reconciled and have peace with God. We also know from Acts 26 that we are sanctified by faith in Christ. So Adventists simply believe what the Bible says, that we're saved through faith and that by faith we are justified, which happens uh, in a moment, and we're sanctified, which is the ongoing process of developing a Christ-like character. So why would any Adventist have a problem with this? Well, the issue, if I could boil it down, is all about the assurance of salvation. To make sure that no one feels anxious about their salvation, there's been a constant effort through the years to split up justification and sanctification and to make sure people know that we are saved the moment we accept Jesus, justification, and that the long process of character development, sanctification, is only what might we refer to as the fruit of salvation. That way, if your character isn't yet perfect, is yours, neither is mine. That way, if your character isn't yet perfect, you don't have to feel anxious that you might not make it to heaven. You understand? The idea is that our ticket to heaven is based on what Jesus did for us on the cross and not by what he is doing to help us overcome sin in our lives today. And there's a strong, strong emphasis placed on that so that you can maintain your assurance. If you're struggling to overcome sin, you can still feel assured of salvation. You get the idea. Well, I know that those who are going to great lengths to make a clear distinction between the roles of justification and sanctification, I know that they mean well. And there is a lot of truth, even, in what I have described, because there are some distinctions. There wouldn't be two different words if they weren't two different things. But there are some major pitfalls to making this strong emphasis and strong distinction also. For instance, while you're aiming to give the growing Christian assurance of salvation, you can unwittingly give the rebellious backslider the same assurance. I mean, if the righteousness of, cover, of, of Christ covers one, it covers all, right? I mean, as long as they confess Jesus is Lord. But this starts getting dangerously close to once saved, always saved. And Adventists have always avoided this false doctrine by understanding that sanctification or character development is an essential part of the salvation process. As Pastor Mark was talking to us about yesterday, if we're justified by faith and if we're sanctified by faith, then anyone who has saving faith will have both. Right? If you have both, by biblical definition, or I'm sorry, if you have faith, by biblical definition, you have justification and you are being sanctified. 
And we shouldn't be afraid of emphasizing the importance of sanctification because the growth of Christian character is a clear indicator of a saving relationship with Christ. Let's look at a few quotes. Education, page 108. The harvest of life is what? Character. And it is this that determines destiny, both for this life and for the life to come. Christ triumphant, page 188. A character formed after the divine likeness is the only treasure that people can take from this world to the next. The character as formed in this world determines one's destiny for eternity. The element of value in one's life in this world will be of value in the world to come. Character. A person's future is determined by the way one allows himself or herself to be influenced. If one cherishes and cultivates hereditary tendencies for wrong, indulging fleshly inclinations, appetites, and passions, that individual can never enter the kingdom of God. But the person who strives to repress evil inclinations, who is willing to be governed by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, is transformed. The Acts of the Apostles, page 560. Sanctification is not the work of a moment, an hour, a day, but of a lifetime. It is not gained by a happy flight of feeling, but is the result of constantly dying to sin and constantly living for Christ. Wrongs cannot be righted nor reformations wrought in the character by feeble, intermittent efforts. It is only by long, persevering effort, sore discipline, and stern conflict that we shall overcome. We know not one day how strong will be our conflict the next. So long as Satan reigns, we shall have self to subdue, besetting sins to overcome, so long as life shall last, there will be no stopping place, no point which we can reach and say, I have fully attained. Sanctification is the result of lifelong obedience. And then comes this one in early writings, page 71. I also saw that many do not realize what they must be in order to live in the sight of the Lord without a high priest in the sanctuary through the time of trouble. Those who receive the seal of the living God and are protected in the time of trouble must reflect the image of Jesus fully. Let's review here for a minute, shall we? We're justified by faith, and we're sanctified by faith, and we understand that there are many people who are trying hard to make sure that we know that only justification has anything to do with our salvation. They describe sanctification as being the fruit of salvation. And I'm just not comfortable with this phrasing. You see, if I refuse to live by faith, which is evidenced by refusing the Holy Spirit's efforts to develop my character, then my persistent refusal of sanctification results in a loss of my justification. The faith that brings both justification and sanctification is not passive, it is active. Go back and read Hebrews chapter 11. They are so closely connected that we have to be really, really careful or we'll make it appear that you can have one without the other. So here's what's happening. We read these Spirit of Prophecy quotes like, character determines destiny. Well, let's think about that. Is she saying that salvation is by works? No. But sanctification, the development of character, will always be present in a person who is justified by faith. 
I just don't see evidence of Ellen White trying to split it all up. Many Adventists today would try to be super careful to, to not make someone worry too much about their salvation by saying something like, yes, character is important, but it's justification and not sanctification that actually determines your destiny. But that's just not what she says. So think about it. She says character determines destiny and sanctification is the work of developing character. But here's the real kicker. She says that sanctification is the work of a lifetime. So this is how people get all hung up. They say, well, if character determines destiny and that process takes an entire lifetime, then I'll never have any assurance that I'm saved because my character will still need work my whole life. And then they read this quote on the screen that says that our character must reflect the image of Jesus fully to receive the seal of God and pass through the time of trouble at the, at the end of time. And they're ready to throw in the towel. But brothers and sisters, let me remind you of a couple things. Steps to Christ, page 64. It says, The closer you come to Jesus the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes. For your vision will be clearer, and your imperfections will be seen in broad and distinct contrast to His perfect nature. This is, what's the next word? Evidence, Evidence that Satan's delusions have lost their power, that the vivifying influence of the Spirit of God is arousing you. No deep-seated love for Jesus can dwell in the heart that does not realize its own sinfulness. The soul that is transformed by the grace of Christ will admire His divine character. But if we do not see our own moral deformity, it is unmistakable evidence that we have not had a view of the beauty and excellence of Christ. So yes... Those who pass through the time of trouble and see Jesus come in the clouds will reflect the image of Jesus fully. But we will never feel like we do. The closer we come to Jesus, the more faulty we appear in our own eyes. So what are we told to do? Do not look at your own weaknesses. Look at Jesus. Check it out. Steps of Christ, page 71. Many who are really conscientious and who desire to live for God. He too often, the Satan it's speaking about, leads to dwell upon their own faults and weaknesses. And thus by separating them from Christ, he hopes to gain the victory. We should not make self the center and indulge anxiety and fear as to whether we shall be saved. All this turns the soul away from the source of our strength. Rest in God. He is able to keep that which you have committed to Him. Amen. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 2 says, We're to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You see, the reason we don't have to be anxious is not because we don't have to keep the law of God. It isn't because we don't have to overcome besetting sins. And it isn't because we feel so worthy of salvation or so confident in our pristine characters. It's because the author of our faith is more than able to be the finisher of our faith. It's because the Savior who began this work in us is more than able to complete it. 
So it's okay to believe that the cleansing of the sanctuary involves the preparation of a people for the coming of Jesus. Because Hebrews says that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And it's okay, and it's actually entirely Adventist, to believe based on Revelation 14 that the 144,000 who are taken to heaven at the coming of Jesus are those who faithfully follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It's entirely right to believe, according to the same chapter, that these translated ones will be without fault before the throne of God. And it's okay to believe the spirit of prophecy when it says that the final generation will reflect the image of Jesus fully. We do not have to give up our belief in these things in order to have assurance of salvation. Because our assurance is not based on our weakness. It is based on Jesus' strength. I'd like you to notice something. This text uh, is absolutely incredible. This quote from Maranatha 2.73. The time of trouble is the crucible that is to bring out Christ-like characters. It is designed to lead the people of God to renounce Satan and his temptations. So see, the ones who reflect the image of Jesus fully don't achieve it on their own. The Lord Himself has designed experiences that will bring out Christ-like characters and lead us to renounce Satan and his temptations. I'm not saying this to discourage anyone, but to encourage you. You see, there are times, personally, when I am ready to give up on myself. I say, Lord, I'm just so hard-headed, and my character and habits are so ingrained, I don't see how I'm ever going to make it. But I will not let those feelings overwhelm me. The righteous do not live by feelings, but by faith. Faith in Jesus, the author and finisher. I don't know how He's going to do it. I'm being truthful. I don't have a clue how He's going to do it. I can't seem to figure it out. I've tried. But I am not giving up. I'm going to live my life, frail and imperfect as it may be, to the best of my silly ability for Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. And when I fall, I'm going to get back up. And when the devil tempts me with my wayward heart, I'm going to openly acknowledge it, and then I'm going to point to Jesus. Jesus knows how to do it. It's impossible to save someone like me. But Jesus can do the impossible. What can I tell you? When I cast my helpless soul on Jesus, I find peace. I say, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you've got to do every part of it. Like, you know that whole cooperating with you part? I need you to make me do that. And I believe He'll do it. I don't need to know how He's going to do it. I refuse to sit around indulging anxiety as to how He can possibly save me. I just need to believe it and keep doing my level best to follow, no matter how many times I fall. As it says in this quote, Jesus has plans. You don't know the plans. I don't know the plans. But there's plans designed by Jesus to lead the people of God to renounce Satan and his temptations. He has designed experiences for my life. Some of the ones that I may even feel like, boy, after I went through that experience, I went through the worst spiritual drought 
in my life. He's even designed those experiences so that in the end, He's going to bring out that Christ-like character at last. Mm. Isn't that good news? That's just so, so good news. I want to talk to you a little bit about Christ-like character. What time, how long do I have? I have as long as I want, right? Because I have the next session too. Right. But it's 3.15, right? Okay, good. Good. I'm doing fantastic, by the way. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Thank you. It's good to have brothers and sisters. You're faithful. Faithful. I think of characteristics like love and purity and meekness and honesty and benevolence and self-control. I think, boy, this is, this is what I need. <laughs> this is what I need. And, uh, you know, I think that sometimes we forget that the way that Jesus develops our character uh, is not always the way we like. Because, see, the whole idea of developing character is that you don't have it, right? So, like, you need love developed when you are selfish and what have you, right? You need purity developed when you're impure, you know, you need meekness when you're proud or what have you. So wouldn't you know it, but that Jesus has given in His Word ways for the people of God to practice and express and ingrain these types of character traits into their lives. And it's through Christ-like lifestyle. Love He challenges by giving us calls apart from the world. You recall 1 John 2.15? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So when we talk about the cultural uh, entertainment of today as the world, And how as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a higher standard of recreation than what people in the world do. There's a reason for that. It's because we are on a path to Christ-like character. You understand? So, as Seventh-day Adventists, we can be uh, classified somewhere in the ten virgins of Matthew 25, right? We're either those who have the oil or we're those who don't have the extra oil. And I think it's important to recognize in the parable of Matthew 25 of the ten virgins that the oil is symbolic of the Spirit of God. But it's also important to recognize that the way that you and I 
maintain the Spirit of God in our life is actually by obtaining an experience with the Spirit of God. So let me explain what that means. The Bible says that the Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He'll convict of what's wrong, of what's right, and He'll say there's going to be consequences to whatever you choose. And ultimately, this happens in order to bring us to repentance. In fact, when the Spirit of God brings conviction of sin to you, that in essence is the gift of repentance that Jesus gives. Because you would never turn from that path that you're going down or that sinful thing that you're doing if it hadn't been for the Spirit of God arresting your attention and causing you to feel that there was something wrong. He's giving you the gift of repentance. And the way that you repent is by cooperating with the Spirit of God that's working in your heart and life and surrendering your will to God. Well, this is the way that the Holy Spirit comes into the life. And this is what we also might refer to as the development of character. This is the development of character. And those who have had a wrestling experience with God, who go through their life in an effort to suppress evil inclinations and to cooperate with the Spirit of God, are developing character. And when you see those five who have the extra oil, what they have is character. Because at the end, remember, the ones that don't have the oil, they go to the ones that have the oil and they say, oh, you know, please, we, we need some oil. And what do they tell them? I always thought, how selfish. They didn't give them any of their oil. You know, that's not a good representation. But it's symbolizing something that you cannot give someone. You cannot give someone your character and experience. You cannot believe for your brother or your sister. You cannot help them to make that commitment, that decision to avoid that sinful choice. You just can't. And when, if they have gone down that path their lot, through their lives and they've not p- prepared character, they're going to fall. It's like uh, we talked about during Sabbath school this last week with the Apostle Peter. And I think Pastor Mark talked about it yesterday. The whole idea of Peter's denial was that at that point in his life, his reputation was more than his character. And he needed greater development of character. And it did not matter that he knew what Jesus told him he was going to do. Your character will find you out. And, that, and, and the devil will make sure to bring the experiences that he has designed for you to make sure that your character finds you out. So this is the development of character that we need. But all, all of those virgins slept. And I can't help but think that even as faithful Seventh-day Adventist Christians, many are sleeping in the area of worldliness. I mean, God-loving people sleeping in the area of worldliness. Simply thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to coast a little while. And, uh, you know, because I really like watching these particular things. I really like enjoying this particular activity. I, I, 
I know that I shouldn't, but, you know, in the by and by, I'll get things right. And this is the great danger of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Because Ellen White says in the book Steps of Christ, thousands will be lost because of this one really ugly P word. Procrastination. Procrastination. We need to get serious about this concept of worldliness, even though well-meaning as we are and God-loving people as we are, we know that the devil is trying to slowly bring down the effectiveness of God's people. And, and then, the next thing that happens, and this is the scary part, once the standard of godliness amongst God's people begins to be lowered more on an aggregate, okay, then there begins to be a groundswell to adopt those views based on changing your, your hermeneutic of how you interpret the Bible. You see, remember that the apostle says that in the last days that they will not endure, there coming a time when they will not endure sound doctrine. What does that mean, endure? They're not going to put up with it. It means there's, some, there's something crossing them in their life in this sound doctrine, and there comes a time, there comes a point where they just say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. Instead, let's find people who will really kind of ease it up for us a little bit, okay? Let's make sure we get the right people to speak to us. And remember what it says in the text? Itching ears. The right people to speak to us. And this is not new to the end of time, but I believe it's a bigger issue at the end of time. But it's certainly, throughout the history of the Bible, you have... Uh, do a study on the false prophets sometime, and you'll, you'll find that even in Jeremiah's day and, and in the Apostle Paul's day and what have you, that they, uh, they tried to fix things superficially. And they, by, by basically saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. And we have to be real careful because we have carnal hearts. I mean, I've often said the biggest worry that we have at the end of time is not being deceived by the signs and wonders, though those are a big worry, not being deceived by Satan appearing as Christ, though that would be crazy, but no, the greatest worry we have is that we deceive ourselves. Do you remember, hearers of the word, but not doers, James says, deceiving yourselves. See, if you hear the word, but you don't do, and you start heaping up teachers to, to give you a different biblical interpretation that accommodates something that you have now as an aggregate begun to accept, then you are deceiving yourself. And this is the biggest challenge that we're going to have. We need to be kind with one another, be uh, sympathetic and graceful toward one another, but we need to be conscientious. We need to be thinking about this because Jesus is coming, right? I mean, this is not make-believe. We have the promise that the high priest will one day finish his work and he'll lay off the priestly garments and he'll put on the crown and he will come to deal out rewards one way or the other. And we want to be ready. We all want to be ready. So we need to put on our alert hats again. It's high time for all of us to awake. And when it comes to building character, it's not done in a moment. That character that we want at the end to be able to, that extra oil, you're not going to flip the switch. 
You understand? We need to be thinking about that now to develop that Christ-like character. Christ-like character of purity is uh, often challenged by the lifestyle of sexual immorality. And here we are in a day and age where right is wrong and wrong is right and who knows what's going on. People really are confused. They really think that even though what's staring them in the face, which is biological differences, even though that's staring them in the face, that somehow there is a different part of us that is totally, uh, could be something totally different. I'm not here to get into the uh, you know, debates about actual uh, you know, cognitive dissonance that can be going on um, and real, very real temptations that people have. As Seventh-day Adventists, if there's one thing that we need to be doing with anyone who experiences sexual immorality is we need to be sympathetic. And we need to be helpful. I mean, I mean, think about it. When you have a strong temptation, the last thing you need is somebody who cannot in any way understand what you're saying. So if there's anything we need to be, it's showing empathy for people. I fully believe that. And I think that that's all good. The awareness that, that the church has been trying to give toward having that type of attitude. The challenge that I have is when we begin to, what I would say, uh, put a stamp on a particular style of living as, uh, you know, whether it's acceptable or legitimate in some way. Like, we need to be really uh, uh, accepting of or kind to the LGBT community. Well, I don't really like even the whole idea of referring to them as the LGBT community, as if that is a way to identify someone. I just don't like it. I think that the problem is we have so identified with these temptations that it's made people feel like they're locked in. And so we need to be really careful how we even word things. I believe, though, that we're at a day and age where everything will seek to be justified by the Bible. I personally had the experience of, of uh, working with a young man who was... Uh, experiencing temptation with same-sex attraction, and spent he was a church member of mine, and we spent time studying, quite a quite a bit of time, and after a period of time, uh, and part of the reason was because he wanted to study with me, because he had felt that biblically he could support his uh, new choice of lifestyle, because he had not previously. Uh, at the, before then, I did not know that he was even thinking about it. And he began to strongly promote and what have you, so I was kind of put in a position where I really needed to, to talk to him and study it out with him. And we studied and went through the texts. And I, I'm trying to be as transparent as I can with you that I love the man. I mean, he's a fine young man. And we, I have no reason 
to not study with him and take everything he's saying seriously and take it to heart. But that was not what led me to believe differently than what he was expressing to me. But you can go, for instance, to Romans chapter 1, where uh, one of the first places we went, and the conclusion that was drawn in Romans chapter 1 was very different than anything I had ever heard. In Romans chapter 1, it says in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their lust for one another. And as we talked about it, the explanation that was given to me was that the key to the text is that it's speaking about the natural use. So for a heterosexual, the natural use of the woman is in a sexual relationship. And so for the heterosexual, it is shameful for them to be with a man with a man. But for a homosexual, the natural use is a man with a man. So for a homosexual, it is wrong for them to be with someone of the opposite gender. And that's what the Apostle Paul was referring to. Then we went to Leviticus and we talked about uh, the idea of lying with someone of the same gender being an abomination. And he quickly showed me how the word was actually speaking about male prostitution. And if you look in the context, it's connected with idolatry and many other awful things. This was not talking about a simple monogamous relationship between a man and a man. It was talking about a very uh, specific occurrence that was very uh, promiscuous and everything else. Now, what I'm trying to tell you is that there are some people who... Uh, who feel, wow, and, and maybe I might have felt that way. I don't think there's anybody who could ever try to explain this from the Bible. I mean, they might look to something outside the Bible, but they would never try to explain it by the Bible. But it is quite clear that many people are aiming to explain it by the Bible using a very gymnastic style, whatever it takes, hermeneutic. And I would dare say that in this case, we do not accept that hermeneutic because many of us look and there is a certain level of, um, there's some level of discomfort with the idea of ever accepting something like this. But in other areas where it's not as difficult to accept this or that practice, the same type or level of hermeneutic might be used, but we don't get all worked up about it because we are not so uncomfortable with the conclusion that it might take us to. My point is that it's an issue of biblical interpretation, and unless we are honest with ourselves when it comes to the interpretation of the Bible. See, there's, there's big problems that he has in this. Like, for instance, the very next part of the verse says, um, men, or I'm sorry, uh, likewise the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. And, I, and he said, well, this is talking about heterosexuals who would be with homosexuals and because the natural use is for a woman, so they shouldn't be with a man, man with a man, because they're heterosexual. I said, I'm sorry, but heterosexual men don't burn with lust for other men. And the text is saying that they were burning with lust for the man. So my point is, you can do some things but unless you can reconcile everything you're doing with the rest of the text and with the body of inspiration, 
then you have to just say, no, that can't be it. That can't be it. The issue comes down to Bible interpretation. Yes, sir. Then you can go. And I can tell you that, you know, um, the situation I'm, I speak of from my own experience kind of went that way, where all of a sudden there were other behaviors and things that this individual would never have been involved in or embraced prior to that, that, you know, this kind of opened the door, I believe, to that kind of thing. So it's very, very true. This particular issue is going to be, you know, a big one for us. Let me just tell you, I'm going to be as straight as I can. The Achilles heel for the Seventh-day Adventist Church in places where they want to stick to the truth is going to be if you have the wrong attitude on this. I mean, I can see it. Um, if, if, if you stick to the Bible, but you, you know, growl like a bear... It's going to be bad news for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You need to be clear. You need to be convicted. But you need to have the love of Christ in your heart. Because these are people we're talking about. These are you know, real people. I mean, I, I mean, you think about it. These are our sons and daughters. These are, these are people that, that we need to be ministering to. But we can't get uh, foggy on the biblical truth of the matter. That's the point. Now let me flip to another one. Meekness is a character trait. I, don't, I hope you see where I'm going here, that we have character traits, but those character traits are connected to lifestyle. And the faithfulness in lifestyle is a way that God gives us to build that character trait. Um, you know, and I didn't even take time to deal with the heterosexual immorality issues that we have um, and and I won't take time to talk about pornography and the like, but the bottom line is this is an issue that happened very strongly in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and we understand that at the end of time it will be much like Sodom and Gomorrah. So we need to be on guard. This is us and our own lives I'm talking about. Now meekness is a sweet, uh, humble uh, character trait of Christ, and the Bible uh, connects it with modesty. Do you know that? In, in uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says that we should not let our adorning not be that outward adorning, uh, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, the meek and quiet spirit, which he then says are very precious in the sight of God. Now, when you think about um, things that we refer to, physical things that we refer to as precious in this world, one of the first things that pops into your mind is gems. (laughs) Okay, So this whole idea I don't think was by accident that the apostle was saying this. He was saying, yes, in the world, fully understand that if you present yourself in a way that, uh, that is precious to the world, wearing jewels and the rest, it, it will attract the world. But just be sure you understand 
that what's precious to God is a meek and quiet spirit. That's what he's saying. He's saying we need to understand that there is something that's precious to God. We have to decide who we're trying to please and where we're trying to get our approval from. And this issue of modesty uh, in dress and in uh, adornment is one that is we're about to lose a handle on. Um, I was in a meeting not too long ago where we were talking about defining what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist disciple. And, you know, we talked about the Adventist lifestyle. And we listed out a few of the things involved in an Adventist lifestyle, like healthy living and um, stewardship and those types of things. Um, but we didn't list anything about modesty. And I thought, well, we probably ought to, because in the uh, fundamental belief, I think it's number 22, on Christian behavior, there are a few key areas that it addresses. One is recre uh, entertainment and our choice of entertainment. The second is on modesty. And then there's one more on uh, health and temperance. And so I thought it'd probably be good for us if we're putting a little something in there to say something about modesty. And I couldn't quite convince the others in the room <laughs> that we should put it on there. And, you know, I think the understanding sometimes is, well, it's viewed differently in different parts of the world and that sort of thing, and we just need to be cautious that we don't, you know, uh, whatever. My concern is this. If we try to be cautious about it to the point of not educating on it, it will go away. You understand? And unfortunately, we can't allow it to go away if we're bound by inspiration. <laughs> That comes back to the Bible. Um, if you've not had someone study this issue with you from the Bible, um, there's a, a more thorough treatment that you could get in the Discipleship Handbook. We have a whole chapter on it. But I'll take you to one text. Can I take you to one text? Just one text. It is probably the most uh, you know, direct text. And that is found in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this happens to be in the same vicinity as the passage we looked at a couple days ago. Um, we're going to start in verse 9. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 9. Have you found it? The Bible says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in what? Modest apparel. Now, well, I'll read the whole thing and then we'll come back. With propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So a few things off the top here. This, I believe, the principles here, which are relating to women because they perhaps are more common among women, apply equally to men. Um, furthermore, the text uses the phrase in the English, braided hair. I personally do not believe this is talking about a simple braid. Um, there are studies that have been done. I don't know that any of them are 100% conclusive, but that the word braided or broidered uh, referred to an elaborate style at that time and oftentimes jewels weave through or whatever. To me, the issue is that the very context is talking about uh, ornamenting or adorning or, or ostentatious, yeah. And I don't see a simple braid in any way. Oftentimes it's a practical thing. 
And so I don't think that's what's being addressed here at all, and I don't think that the word necessarily translates to braided as we would see it exactly today. That doesn't mean that I don't think it certainly can be ostentation with some braided hair. Um, and that certainly is something that people should think about. But if you look at the text, I want to point out a few key points in it. First of all, it says to dress in modest apparel. Now, modest is a principle, and modesty obviously refers to being adequate, adequately clothed, but the Apostle Paul primarily uses it to speak of not being uh, ornamental or uh, showy, if you will. That's how he primarily uses it. Because notice the things that he talks about, costly clothing, for instance. He doesn't talk about clothing that doesn't cover you enough. He's talking about being too ostentatious in the way you dress. Okay? So, but notice something else in here. He has this list of items, and it begins by expressing what list of items is not modest. That's the exact way he does it. He says uh, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with. Now the words not with, that phrase implies not with any. That's exactly what it implies. It would be like if I, you know, went to, uh, you know, Bob Evans and went in to order an omelet, and I said, um, yeah, I'd like an omelet, but not with onions and peppers. And then they brought me the omelet, and I see like an onion sticking out of one half part and a pepper sticking out of the other half. And I say, I'm sorry, I don't know if you heard me, but I, I ordered this not with onions or peppers. They said, no, I heard you. Um, that's why I didn't put very many in there. <laughs> right? I mean, the, the language means not with any. I mean, that's what it implies. He says, dress in modest apparel, not with these things. Right? So then when he lists the things, here's the interesting thing you'll want to notice. There are two things that are qualified and two things that are not. Two things that are qualified by a type of word that in the English language we refer to as what? An adjective. Two things that have an adjective in front of them. What are they? Hair. And what's the other one that has an adjective in front of it? Clothing. Now, why would you put an adjective in front of hair and clothing? Because hair is... Not always immodest, right? So you have to describe when it becomes immodest. And clothing is not always immodest. You have to describe when it is immodest. But notice that it does not say expensive gold or uh, costly pearls or even, you know, uh, lots of or huge or... <laughs> there's no adjective... Because the thing about wearing the jewels is they are by nature immodest. Because their very purpose is ornamentation. At least that's what he's referring to is that which is for ornamentation. So what you're, what you're seeing here is, is a contrast. Because notice the last part of the verse. It says, but, verse 10, but, I'm going to add the word that so that it's a little bit clearer to you, but that is implied. But that which is proper for women professing godliness. 
Now when he says, but which is proper for women professing godliness, what is he saying about the things in the list? That they are not proper for women professing godliness. So what, what do we call a woman who's professing godliness? A Christian woman. So he's saying it's not proper for a Christian woman to wear these things, but they should wear that which is proper for a woman professing godliness with good works. So what is he saying? He's saying, let your adornment be your character, and let it not be the outward. And he, and he lists out certain things. Now, this is not exclusive to this passage, because the one I mentioned earlier from Peter also says, let your adornment not be that outward adorning, but let it be the inward of a meek and quiet spirit. And then you go to Revelation, and you know this, you look in Revelation and you have these women in Revelation. And women symbolize the church. So you have in Revelation chapter 12 this woman. What's she clothed with? This is the true church. <laughs> Lots of things. <laughs> she is clothed with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Go and look at it in, in Revelation 12. The sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, this is what's fascinating to me. I was thinking about this one day, and I was saying, oh, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. In the Bible, there's a name for that. It's the heavens. And then, boom, Psalm 19.1 just hit me right in the forehead. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, in the Bible, what's the glory of God? It says character. That's right. This is describing this church symbolically being dressed with the character of Christ. And is there any artificial ornamentation on that first woman? Any? Nothing. You go to the second woman of Revelation, in chapter 17, and you find that she is clothed with the scarlet. That's the costly clothing, right? And she's got precious jewels, and etc. How much natural light is she wearing? None. I mean, this is the thing. In the New Testament, the, the big argument is, well, yeah, we should be whatever, but we should be, you know, like, um, we should be not totally saying that it's um, wrong, but that it's just in moderation. No. If you look in the Apostle Paul, you look in the Apostle Peter, and you look at the pictures in Revelation, in every case, it's one or the other. They're actually being demonstrated as having some conflicting principles in reality. And so that's the picture that we see in the Bible. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. Ellen White says in Evangelism, page 268, the idolatry of dress is what kind of a disease? You see, the issue is that people want to say, uh, you know, it doesn't matter as long as you have a relationship with God, you know, these other things... They're no big deal. But when you look at it and you see that these are dealing with the development of character, right? Because this is dealing with humility and meekness and the development of Christian character. Then you recognize that this has moral implications and Ellen White affirms it. In most cases, submission to the gospel requirements will demand a decided change in the dress. And then, of course, if you want to know plainly what the Seventh-day Adventist position has been presented as from the spirit of prophecy. Self-denial and dress is part of our Christian duty. 
to dress plainly and abstain from display of jewelry and ornaments in every kind is in keeping with our faith. So that's what we've always held to as Seventh-day Adventists. That's why I say if you, if you want to kind of ignore and do away, then, you have, to, then you're, you have to deal with inspiration, see? We want to maintain what the Bible and the spirit of prophecy want us to maintain. You understand, of course, that on this particular issue, many Christian denominations used to hold the same position that we did. You know, and you can think of, of prominent preachers like Spurgeon, the Baptist Prince of Pre Preachers. He taught the same as what we believe. You think of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. He taught what we believe. Charles Finney from the Great Second Awakening in, here in the United States. He taught as we believe. And we can look at the Anabaptists, uh, who were the forerunners of Baptists, and they all taught what we believe. But what happens to denominations? What, is, what begins to happen? Culture, see? That's why I'm telling you. Culture changes the way that we interpret the Bible. If it gets united enough, if culture is in one voice strongly enough and begins to make you look like you are like from who knows where to st still hold on to the view that you have, then suddenly different ones in the church start arguing the issue and eventually it begins to build and the aggregate begins to feel that way and then they modify a different interpretation of the Bible. And if you look even today in the New King James in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 and it talks about let not your adornment be that outward adorning, it says let it not merely be. And there's the word merely is in italics. That's because it's been added to, to try and make it sound like what they think the apostle was trying to say. But it's not what he said. And so we need to recognize that culture has a way, and it has a way in our own church, of making these types of, of things. Is this a quick question? Because I only have a few minutes, but go ahead. Yeah, we certainly don't want... Sure. And there are some men who actually want their wives to dress that way with uh, jewels and what have you because it's sort of a, a sta status thing or something. So for sure, it's something that everybody needs to be faithful in. What about honesty? What has God given us to develop honesty? Returning a faithful tithe. Right? I mean, it belongs to God. We are also told that we're to be benevolent, but many are withholding offerings. What I'm trying to show you is that the lifestyle things that we sometimes argue about as no big deal are actually things that God has given us to develop the character that's preparing us for the coming of Jesus. You know, this isn't just a matter of whether you're going to have enough to pay. The, no, this is testing us. These things that Scripture give us test our loyalty to God, and, and build up a Christ-like character. Character is not produced in a moment. Character is produced by the little things, the choices of our lives. And if we are seeing any of these areas that we're challenged in, then we know that we need to get on our knees before God and say, God, I, I was looking at it in a certain way, but now I see that it's, it's a character issue, and I need that Christ-like character and so please, make me faithful. Make me faithful. And then, of course, self-control has this challenge of intemperance. Now, you know, we could talk about a lot of things with intemperance. I certainly know that in uh, 
I mean, I was in some circles, people believe, I was talking to somebody recently uh, in the General Conference building, about the idea that uh, our understanding of being vegetarian is an Adventist thing, but not a biblical thing. And I conceded that the Bible is very clear that it's not a sin to eat clean meat. But having said that, it's also not true that it is not a biblical thing to promote a vegetarian diet. Because we know that in Genesis, in the beginning, before sin, a vegetarian diet was given to humanity. We also know that when Jesus was talking about divorce, He said, you know, is it okay to divorce for any reason? He said, well, Moses allowed you because of the hardness of your hearts, but in the beginning, it was not so. And in saying it, Jesus was pointing back to the beginning before sin as the ideal for humanity. And so in the same way as the Sabbath is the ideal for humanity and marriage is the ideal for humanity, this Diet is the ideal for humanity. It doesn't make it sin if you, you know, have other things. We're not going to get over the top. But it certainly is the ideal for humanity, especially for those who are preparing for the coming of Jesus. And then when you look at heaven, it says there'll be no more death. And so everyone in heaven will be a Sabbath-keeping vegetarian. And so why not start preparing now? You have every right to teach that as a biblical principle, and there's no harm or shame in doing it. Now, having said that, I want to I know I've got hands, but look at how much time I have. Zero. So, here's the other issue. We are struggling with whether or not it's okay to dabble in the wine. So, I don't have time to get into it, but a bigger, more accepted thing is Starbucks. Man, what are we doing? Selected Messages, Book 3, page 287. Tea, coffee, tobacco, and alcohol we must present as sinful indulgences. We cannot place on the same ground. This is for the uh, extremists that need the you know, balance put there. We cannot put on the same ground meat, eggs, butter, cheese, and such articles placed upon the table. Did you catch all that? These are not to be borne in front as the burden of our work. The former, and she lists them again, tea, coffee, tobacco, beer, wine, and all spirituous liquors, are not to be taken moderately, but discarded. You know what discarded means? Yeah, I'm just making sure. <laughs> the poisonous narcotics, notice what she calls all of those things, are not to be treated in the same way as a subject of eggs, butter, and cheese. Now, lest we, somebody go crazy on me, um, Ellen White, there was chocolate in her day, and she never actually wrote a condemnation of it. That doesn't make it healthy. I'm telling you, it does not make it healthy. But there is a, a degree here of concentration that she's talking about that has made these things, you know, it's like, it's like saying if somebody is wrong for going to decaf because it has a little bit in it. I mean, it's not the best thing for you, but yes, go from regular to decaf if that's what you need to do. Um, and then eventually you moved on to Roma or herb tea, right? And then, Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 289. This is how I'm going to close. There are many in the church who at heart belong to the world, but God calls upon those who claim to believe the advanced truth to rise above the present attitude of the popular churches of today. Where is the self-denial? 
Where is the cross-bearing that Christ has said should characterize his followers? The reason we have had, read this closely, the reason we have had so little influence upon unbelieving relatives and associates is that we have manifested little decided difference in our practices from those of the world. We like to say it's the opposite. Parents need to awake and purify their souls by practicing the truth in their home life. When we reach the standard that the Lord would have us reach, when we reach the standard that the Lord would have us reach, worldlings will regard Seventh-day Adventists as odd, singular, straight-laced extremists. We are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. Brothers and sisters, one of the best things you can do for the development of your character is to bear the reproach of Christ. And he has given us distinct lifestyle practices for the very purpose of helping us to develop a character for heaven and because it's the best for our life and because he wants us to be happy and he wants us to have a good experience. As it says in Steps to Christ, God never takes away anything that would be for our best interest to retain. God has our good in mind and he has our character development in mind. How many of you want to say, Lord Jesus, help me to develop a character like yours? Father in heaven, thank you for this time we've had. We pray that the future of Adventist lifestyle will be bright among those in this room. And we pray that the future of Adventism will be shown to us by you as you unfold to us the glorious future that awaits us. We know that the future of Adventism is bright. We know that you're going to see us safely through to the end. We know that one day the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we, Lord willing, in this room, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet you in the air. And thus we'll always be with you, Lord Jesus. Please prepare us for that day and let not one of us be lost, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.